0: Welcome to Hubstaff's
1: Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency.
0: Hey guys, welcome to episode six of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and every week I'll bring you a new interview with an agency owner who shares actionable advice to make your own agency more successful. Today, I'm really excited to talk to Philip Morgan. Philip originally got into freelancing when he was laid off in 2008. In the beginning, he had one big client, but when he lost him overnight, he was without work for weeks and vowed never to make the same mistake again. Since then, by taking responsibility for doing his own sales and marketing, he's been able to break free of the feast or famine grind and create a reliable stream of clients for his business. Today, Philip hosts the Consulting Pipeline podcast, has written two books, It helps development shops use positioning, content marketing, and marketing automation to get higher rates, better clients, and build a better pipeline. In our chat, he will share how you can use the same tools to stand out from the crowd, build trust with your prospects, and keep your pipeline full. So without further ado, here's Philip. All right, so Philip, thanks for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure, Andy. Glad to be here.
0: So today you're an expert on positioning and you help development shops fill their pipeline. But did you kind of did you always have this laser focused niche or could you tell a little bit about your background? How did you get into consulting and what was it like at the start for you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I was not born this way. Um, <laughs> like everybody I know, you kind of, uh, you know, make your way through life trying different things and eventually you find something that really clicks. And helping people with their positioning has been that for me. But I started out as a generalist freelancer after I sort of ungracefully um, got laid off in 2008. I think a lot of people got laid off in 2008. Yeah. And I was one of those people. Um, and I was like, why don't I give this self-employment thing a try? Very – I sort of went into it in retrospect kind of arrogantly thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. And what I discovered is that it is not a piece of cake to – do all the things that you have to do as a self-employed um, freelancer to keep work coming in, to, you know, level out your cash flow. All these things that, you know, your listeners know are really big challenges. I was just like, ah, w- how hard can it be? <laughs> turned out it was pretty hard. Right. You
0: found out pretty quickly it was not that easy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. But I'm still here today. Uh, so 2008 was when I got laid off, coasted on, you know, self unemployment for a couple months. So really, it was two thousand nine when I. Uh, what were you doing before you were laid off? I was working for a small agency that worked for Microsoft. So I was doing things like writing white papers for Microsoft, um, case studies, web copy. So yeah, again, their main client was Microsoft, and mm-hmm. um, and I was just kind of a. I thought of myself as a writer, really. Okay. And that was one of the things, by the way, just you know, giving away the end of the story here that I had to stop doing was stop thinking of myself with, with that label of I'm a writer. Mm -hmm.
0: And so what, when you, when you set out on your own, what was the process? Like you said, it was a lot harder than you expected, but what sort of happened when you're trying to get some clients, you're, you're not going after Microsoft on your own. So what, who were you trying to get as your clients?
1: Yeah, Microsoft did not say, "So sorry, we'll put you on our vendor list here so you can <laughs> so you can right. mop up some of this work we've got." So what I did is I think what a lot of people do, uh I went and kind of tapped my personal network. I partnered up with a friend of mine and that kind of expanded my network and and one of the mistakes I made was I I sort of delegated uh the idea that any selling that was going to happen would not be my problem. And so I kind of, I mean, what's, what's the nice word to say that I just sort of said, well, you know, somebody else can do that. And so I did not take responsibility for that, which turned out later to be a problem, not any, any fault of my partners. It just, I don't think you can really run a small business that way where some people think it's not their responsibility to sell. But uh, to answer your question, tap the personal network that shook loose some work, and kind of coasted on that. And then what's funny to me in retrospect is the thing that I always um, you know, inwardly criticized my previous employer for was having one big client. I was like, that's such a tactical blunder. Why would you do that? I made the exact same mistake myself. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I got a big client, got busy servicing that big client, and then things changed that were outside of my control. And the big client literally overnight was gone. Along with all the revenue that was attached wow. to that
0: and no, because I, I can understand how that, that goes is you you when you're starting up, you you find this big client they're working for you they're giving you almost more work that you can handle, and you know in the back of your head, i shouldn't just have one client, but at the same time the money's good, and you don't have
1: much time to do anything else exactly and you're like, oh good, I don't have to do that thing I didn't want to do which right was you're almost selling. thankful yeah. And then uh, when things change, wow! Do you wish you had done things differently? <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened when you when you lost that client? What what happened? I went several months without any income whatsoever, which was horribly painful. And I went into a, a sort of a mode that I think a lot of listeners are going to be familiar with, which is scrambling, uh, emailing people, cold emailing people. Uh, do you have anything? Do you know of any work? And, you know, once again, that kind of uh, shook loose some work and and the crisis was over for a little bit, but it was a, it got, you know, the, the fluctuations got better, but it's still, it's that pattern that I know is so familiar to people where the demand is not predictable and you feel like generating the demand for your services is something you do in a kind of reactionary, haphazard way. Right. At that point, you're
0: entering kind of, right, like the the feast or famine mode where when things are good, they're good. And then when they go away, you're scrambling. And so is that the time when you said, all right, things need to change?
1: Not exactly. I I sort of persisted with that status quo. It wasn't just that. I guess I'm a pretty patient um, person. and I can take a lot of pain. (laughs) So there was plenty of pain going on there. But really, I, I was living in Oregon at the time and it just not cut out for that kind of weather. So, just nonstop rain pretty much. Yeah, you know, there's like so someone joked the other day and I thought it was perfect. Uh there's two seasons in Oregon. There's a rainy season and then there's August. <laughs> and they're talking about western Oregon. Um so I just it kind of reached my limit with that and at the same time just decided I'm going to try to do some things differently. I actually uh applied for some jobs because Okay. I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just not cut out for this. I, I think what I actually learned was, uh, I'm not half bad at this, but I needed to do some things differently, um, for it to be a better fit for my life. So that's, uh, that was, I don't know, two years ago, thereabouts, uh, mm-hmm. two and a half years ago, maybe that, that, that I made that change and I started doing some things differently and, uh, got different results that I'm much happier with, by the way.
0: Yeah. And so what, what was it you did differently what and what made you kind of go in a different direction other than everything around you? How did you know what you
1: needed to change i was I became willing to take responsibility f- for uh for doing sales and marketing for myself was the first thing, which again mm-hmm. was just kind of addressing a a personal limitation i to do that, I said, well, maybe I need to look outside myself, maybe i'm just um, Maybe I could kind of level up in this area. And, um, and really, uh, and I just started experimenting with changing pricing, moving away from hourly billing and trying some different pricing models. Those were really the, the three things that I changed at first. Okay. And, and then being willing to take responsibility for sales and marketing, uh, caused some other changes that, uh, that ultimately I think were responsible for. Making me feel like I'm finally in a situation that's sustainable that I can you know deal with long term.
0: Yeah, and so I, I think it's a common issue that a lot of especially freelancers go through is that they freelance because and it's the same also with any business. They they freelance because they like to design and they're good at that and they they want to do more of that and they want to get paid to do that. But they don't think about all the other aspects that come involved with finding work, maintaining the relationships, and all of that. And so. When you kind of made that realization, what, where did you go? Because you, you were originally you said, "I don't want to touch sales, I don't want to touch into this." So, how did you first get started making that transition?
1: Well, this is all filtered through my my personality. I'm an introvert, and I'm fine with that. Like a lot of the advice about how to do sales is oriented around getting out of the house and making connections and having meetings, and to me, that just was. Uh, maybe that works for other people, but I just knew that would not work for me. So my attempts at marketing myself were, okay, I'm going to do this online so that I can sit in my uh, comfy little home office and get leads from, from a website or however, but it's going to be online. And that was sort of the one constraint that I set on this whole thing. So you wanted to stay away from the phone? Um. If possible. Or out in person. Really, it was, I don't, I I love talking to people over the phone or Skype, as it turns out, most of the time. But I uh, I don't want to do things like cold calling or uh, I'm going to go to networking events and try to meet people there. All that stuff kind of uh, fell under the umbrella of things that I just knew wouldn't work for me. So I said, okay, here's the major constraint. I'm an introvert. I don't want to be, you know, uh, out there trying to knock on people's doors. And so what can I do that might make the situation better within, um, you know, within that, that major constraint? And so it was things like, uh, how can I use content marketing to generate leads? Basically, how can I generate leads online? And then how can that turn into business? And that, kind of turned into a a two-year learning project that led me to this idea of positioning, which I'm not taking credit for. The, the idea was around long before I found it. But that was what brought me to it.
0: So you, you're realizing, like, all right, I need to take ownership for the market. I need to take ownership for sales. I, I need to do some of that. You already have the skills in writing, and so content marketing seems like a great fit. And that was also one of the first kind of
1: services you offered was, Content Sherpa, right? It was. Uh, so, you know, I was on my own and picking up little projects here and there. And a friend of mine named Marcus Blankenship, he and I were talking, and I was kind of laying out my my situation. And, and the, the thing that was at the top of my business dream uh, wish list at that time was recurring revenue. I said, mm-hmm. I want <laughs> recurring revenue. I just am not happy with... Uh, a project starting and then ending and then having to find a new client. And, you know, things were still in my pipeline, pretty choppy at that point. And you know, we're talking again about, you know, maybe two years ago. So Marcus said, well, you know, I used to own an agency uh, and we had this problem of needing content marketing. And, you know, it was always kind of at the bottom of our list. What if you set up a service where you sold that on a subscription basis, you create content marketing for people on a monthly basis and so i did that <laughs> and uh you know it actually worked i launched the thing and people signed up for the thing people i'd never met uh gave me so how how are they finding you oh, man you're asking me to describe the absolute worst way to launch something like that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um some people were kind enough the people who have much larger twitter followings than me who thought the idea was interesting were kind enough to tweet it out Brennan Dunn is one of those people that was enough to get a few people signed up. And then it just kind of built momentum from there. You know, I'm an introvert and uh, people have some perceptions about introverts that are not always correct. Introverts are fine talking to people. (laughs) They just don't get energized by doing it. I, I found that appearing on podcasts as a guest was a, a very effective way to get the word out about my services. And, so I did that a little bit and I think that snagged some subscribers and it was just kind of a, a basket of techniques, none of which I did particularly effectively. But I, you know, I got to the point where I had, uh, I think at 1.6 subscribers for my content Sherpa. So people would give me a credit card and said, I like what you are offering. Let's do this. And, and I did that for a while until I realized that, uh, I'm not. Someone who's cut out really for managing a team of people, and for a service like that to scale, it needed a team of people with with me performing some of the work, but not all of the work.
0: Right, because so I talked with uh, Brian Castle recently, and so he does Audience Ops, which does like, they're another a similar content marketing service, and he is more of the he loves the kind of building processes, managing teams, and all that, and to grow
1: beyond a certain point. It requires a lot of people on the team. Oh, he's so good at that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's like one of those things where you realize that there are some amazing business models out there, and not all of them are a great fit for you. It just kind of – you have to match things up with your personality, just like I did with the, the idea that I'm going to go all in on online marketing and, and leave some other options untouched. Right. You want
0: to play to your strengths. You got it. And especially if you know something's just not going to make you happy, uh, that's why a lot of people get into freelancing or starting an agency is because they want the freedom
1: to pursue things in their own way. That, I mean, th- that describes me to a T I-, I would not make a super good employee for anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a-, a lot of times when I ask this question, I get kind of generic answers, but I don't think I'll get that from you with this. So today,
1: who are your ideal clients? My ideal clients are custom software development shops and, uh, I just want to add that I have not narrowed that down nearly enough. There's, I don't know, I, it's kind of hard to get good numbers on this. If you look at the, you know, the U.S. Census Bureau, I, I feel like their numbers are maybe as, as good as you can get. But they still, their their method of categorizing is kind of out of date and weird. So that's a huge market, and it's it's too big a market that for me to ever establish myself as a leader. So I probably need to narrow that down, but... That's who is my ideal client. So how do you help these custom software development agencies? There's one problem I'm trying to solve for them, which is uh, helping them get a sustainable, uh, predictable supply of leads coming in. There's, you know, there's things that are kind of uh, secondary to that, that I do that are deliverables, Mm -hmm. but I I just frame it, it completely in terms of the problem I'm trying to solve for them. So if they have enough leads, uh, we should not work together because, uh, nothing that I do is really gonna have a ton of value to them. But if they're in a situation where they like to get more leads, particularly through, uh, you know, online marketing, then we should talk and we can kind of take it from there.
0: That's funny because you say you need to narrow it down and already that's a lot more narrow than most people that I've talked to in most agencies. You solve one problem, there's other things that go into it, but you're solving one problem for, well, it's a decent sized uh, market, it's still a defined market. You're solving the pipeline issue for software development agencies.
1: Yeah, it is more narrow than most people are in identifying who they're trying to help and what they do for them. And uh, I think it could be I mean, I need to get it to the point where it's so narrow that I'm a little afraid of how narrow it is because uh, that's one of the keys to getting traction.
0: Let's go with that a little bit. So, how does narrowing it down like that? How would it saying if you wanted to specialize? Would it be something like, I guess maybe not a Rails agency, but would you say like I, I work with custom software development agencies in the a certain market, or, or where where would you go, and how would that help you gain traction?
1: Well, where I would go, uh, it could come out of my experience at this point because I have enough you know experience with this market where I can I could probably make a pretty good projection of where there's enough demand and where there's the best, perhaps, cultural fit, et cetera. I mean, the the kind of problems that, say, Rails development shops experience are not significantly different than the kind of problems that a, a Python shop would experience, right? So that's not a super meaningful differentiator. Right. That's what I was thinking as I was saying that, yeah. However, who hangs out with each other? Typically, it's going to be the rail shops who hang out with other rail shops or the Python shops who go to the same conferences as other Python shops. What I'm looking for is a advantage. And this is what I think everybody in my situation should be looking for. I'm looking for an advantage in business development and word of mouth can be a tremendous advantage. So word of mouth tends to spread within vertical market segments or within really tightly connected horizontal audiences like, you know, who do fortune 500 CEOs hang out with their family, their family, I hope, right. but, uh, <laughs> professionally uh, they have the most in common other executives. exactly, with other yeah. fortune 500 CEOs. So that would allow word of mouth to spread and, you know, who do rail shop owners hang out with and have the most in common with professionally, other rail shop owners. So that would be a reason to narrow down. And I, uh, I swear I could just make an arbitrary choice. I could pick Rails, Python, .NET, and it would be fine at the end of the day because any of those segments are going to be big enough and tightly connected enough that I could come in and be the guy that they go to when they need help with lead generation. The other thing I would do, which I recommend to people as a sort of a hack, is uh, I would look at the conferences that are set up for those various market segments And I would kind of try to map my targeting to how they're targeting people. So conferences tend to be set up by people who are kind of insiders in a certain segment and they're very well connected, probably extroverts for the most part, but not always. (laughs) And I would just rely on their experience to give me a good indicator of whether that market is cohesive enough and, you know, self-identifying enough for me to go after. So if there's no, Uh, conference for RailShop developers, then that may not be a good segment for me to go after because no one else has seen the opportunity there and set up a conference for those people.
0: Just the presence of a conference says that these group of people kind of identify under a certain group, a certain title or whatever, whatever that is. And that sort of identification is what position, I feel like, is what you want
1: to play into. It really is because... I can get lost in my own head and I can say, well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. But really, when you position yourself, you, you have to rely on how your clients see you and what they can believe and accept. And, you know, the most reliable way to do that is first to ask them and, and second to look for the existence of an ecosystem that matches, you know, your positioning. So. You know, if, if you're a custom software development shop and you're trying to sell your services, when you're going after a target market, you can say, well, I think that warehouses might need some custom software to help them manage inventory. And you can test that out, but it's much better if there's a conference for uh, inventory management. Issues for warehouses that really tells mm-hmm. you, oh, people are interested in that subject. They're they wanting to learn about it. They're wanting to connect with each other to network about it. That probably means there's room to sell them, you know, custom software related to that.
0: And so, to play devil's advocate a bit, if I say right now I'm, I'm I run a rail shop and I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing okay. We're we're growing a little bit. We, we our pipeline's not necessarily full, but we haven't had too much of a, a problem getting clients why would i want to say i'm going to exclude 90% of the market and focus just on this segment what it, why would that help me
1: well it does a couple of things and and i do want to before i you know kind of get into the pitch for why you'd want to do it i want to say that give a caveat which is there are other ways to, uh, to you know to run a business and you can successfully run a business as a generalist so i'd be an idiot to say you can't because there's ample proof that you can But, you know, generalists tend to face some problems in that they uh, are relying on luck a little more than I, I would be comfortable with. They're relying on their network, which eventually, you know, you tap out your network if it's not big enough. And their value proposition doesn't look as compelling when you stack it up next to someone who's specialized somewhat. So... The reason that I think you'd want to exclude a, a very large percentage of you know the market in in your positioning is because it allows you to develop valuable expertise a lot faster. You know, if I'm trying to do a lead generation for development shops and photographers and um, you know just add on another six or right. ten. whoever else. Right. Right. My ability to understand the problem domain is reduced because I'm multitasking. And I just can't develop expertise, I think, quickly enough to get my rates up. And really, in professional services, to me, that's the foundation of your ability to command premium rates, is what kind of expertise do you have? And the kind of problems you solve, where do they fall on that sort of corporate Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are they trivial problems or are they really expensive problems that people will pay a lot of money to solve? So I think when you narrow your focus, you can move up that ladder more quickly. And also, as I mentioned previously, word of mouth starts to work in your favor much more uh, significantly than it does otherwise.
0: If you're running a traditional agency, you are on a certain level selling time in in most cases and so to get bigger, you can hire more people and get more clients, but you also could make more money from each client. And to do that, like you said, you need a certain claim of expertise. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm an agency owner, I'm thinking like, all right, great. That works for you. I get that. If, if I could be an expert at this, I'd be able to charge more. It'd be easier to find clients that could identify them. But in my agency, every single job is different. How do
1: I, how can I pick a, one of those expensive problems to solve? You know, the easiest way to start is actually not starting with the problem, but starting with the kind of, uh, market vertical or audience that you're going to serve. So basically that means making a choice and over time, not immediately over time, starting to say no. You know, we're going to refer you elsewhere because we focus on this one type of client. So. There's an important point that's kind of buried in there, which is this is not an, an overnight transformation. This is not something where, you know, mo- next Monday you, you're suddenly doing everything different. It's a process, but it's a process of discovering where your best clients are and thinking about whether focusing on those clients would allow you to deliver more value to them. Even if there's even a chance that the answer to that is yes. Then you, you you know you kind of take the next step and you begin to maybe shift your position and uh, perhaps on your website or maybe just you start to refer away other work so that you can focus more on this type of client. But when you pick a market vertical or a you know an audience, you gain experience in their world much faster if that's who you you know who you focus on serving.
0: Because originally, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking like, okay, if I sort of arbitrarily pick a segment of the market to focus on. That'll help me market better. But it's more than just a change in phrasing. I feel like there's kind of more responsibility
1: that comes along with declaring yourself as an expert. Would you agree with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, there's two sides to that. One is an expert. One of the the benefits of working with an expert is that they help you avoid risk. So, you know, if you uh, work with a a doctor <laughs> in the context of them doing surgery on you, you hope that they are very good at mitigating all the risks that come with, you know, cutting into the human body and doing something. And there's no, it's no different with any other kind of uh, services firm. If you, if you work with a lawyer on a tax case, you hope that they understand all the risks of doing various things and, and help you mitigate those risks. So you don't end up on the wrong side of the IRS. Same mm-hmm. thing, you know, with software developers, once they gain more experience with something, they should be able to mitigate risk better. And that's part of them being able to genuinely and credibly say that they're an expert. You know, again, you, you develop that ability to mitigate risk much more quickly if you focus on a particular type of client. So it's not that you say, well, um, this Monday <laughs> I'm now talking about myself as if I'm an expert and I'm doubling my rates and that's all I have to do it really is a process of sort of developing those uh, capacities but again i i'm repeating myself here I, that development happens a lot faster when it's narrowly focused
0: and i think that you made a really good point that kind of it clicked with me and i'm someone who, who's already believes in all this and supports it but if if i break my hand and i need surgery i'm not going to go to kind of the small town surgeon who does whatever anyone comes to with i want the guy that only does
1: surgery on hands Exactly. There's two things there. One is that small, that doesn't diminish that small town surgeon, but it, it does, uh, mean that there's limits to what that small town surgeon can do. And that means there's room in the market for experts.
0: In a lot of cases, it's probably not that complicated. I'm sure they probably could do a good job, but, I and mean, this is where I think a lot of agencies and freelancers fail is that, they don't think about the risk from the client's perspective. And in their mind, if I'm a, if I'm running a software development agency, if you come to me with any idea for software, we can do it. I mean, within reason. Mm-hmm. But the client isn't going to see it that way. They're, they're going to see, well, my business is a little different, this and that. To you, that doesn't matter. But to the client, it, ma- it matters a lot.
1: You know, I, I think... Uh I, hopefully I'm not making too broad of a generalization here, but I think every problem with, that freelancers and agencies experience boils down to them not being able to see it from the client's perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, um, you know, to use the analogy of, of the hand surgeon, 99 out of a hundred cases are maybe going to be normal, but then there's that hundredth case that has some weird situation. And that's where the expert is able to really justify that premium rate. And the other thing, though, is
0: most of the clients or patients, In that example, probably think they're that one out of 100 that's unique. Yeah. And so they're going to want, even if it's not necessary, they're going to want that expert. They're going to feel better going with that expert. So you, if you're competing against a generalist or a specialist, like the client, even if you're delivering the same thing, the client is always going to feel better going with the specialist.
1: And let's, let me add one more thing to that. So imagine you're that person, your hand is messed up and you need this surgery to repair it and you go to see two doctors. One's the generalist and the, the generalist doctor says, I've done 500 surgeries and then they proceed to show you their portfolio and 20 of those are hand surgeries and the other 480 are other parts of the body. Compare that to going to the hand specialist and the hand specialist says, I've done 500 surgeries and let me show you a list of them and... 450 of them are other people's hands. Where are you at in terms of your level of comfort, your perception of risk, and the emotional part of, of, of deciding who to go with? Uh, right.
0: You don't want, you don't want the guy who's doing it almost part time.
1: Right. So from the client's perspective, when you, when you come in and you see someone saying, I focus on this and then they back it up with proof. And so from a marketing perspective, I'm talking about things like case studies and, and they're saying, look, you know, I have, I want to show you 10 case studies and they're all clients very much like you where we solved a problem very much like this. And we've got so much experience with this. We've developed our own process for handling this. It's a little different than you're going to find anyone or anywhere else. Those things just take people's trust, and it goes through the roof compared to the the alternatives.
0: Yeah, and if, if you think about it, I'm sure some people are they're listening and they're saying, okay, great, but I don't solve medical issues. Nothing's that important. But a lot of times if you're working with these businesses, especially if they're smaller businesses, the business owner that you're dealing with their software needs it's it's not just software to them it's their business it's their livelihood it will supports them and their family even if it's a marketing plan they're coming to you for a reason they want to grow their business and there's a reason why they want to whether it's to have freedom to do this or do that to put their kids through college like those are there's a lot of important reasons and so if you just look at it as i just need to do some seo for them or i need to write this software for them you're, you're kind of missing that and you
1: don't work with them to kind of Lower the risk level. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound overly dramatic, I imagine, to some people. But you are operating on their baby, <laughs> you know, if it's a small no, business. Right. That's very true.
0: If there's one complaint that I hear all the time about positioning yourself narrowly, it's that people worry that doing the same thing every day is going to get really boring. It's a fair point, And after this short message from a sponsor, Philip will share why that's not the case. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage Podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Now, Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or on the back of napkins or whatever else you're using and start getting the insights into how your team is actually spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without all the crazy fees – Where they really find the true value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with a project management tool to see what tasks are taking up their team's time. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I do want to warn you though, there's a good chance once you see this data you're going to be sick when you realize how little time is spent actually delivering the project itself. But you can't set up the procedures to make your agency more efficient if you're just guessing where time is being spent. So give Hubstaff a try so you can stop guessing and start streamlining your agency. Head over to hubstaff.com today and sign up for a free, no credit card required, 14-day trial and get your agency back on track. All right, let's get back to Philip. We've kind of driven that point home, but some of us got into freelancing. Some of us started an agency because the nine-to-five, it was, it was boring. And so the thought of doing surgery on a hand every single day – might be it just sounds boring. What what if people like
1: taking on different projects? They can continue to do that. So I am uh, advocating very strongly that people change how they market their, themselves. And f- at first, that's the only change you actually make is you you stop saying, "Well, I can do anything for anybody involving you know software or SEO or whatever," and you start saying, "I do SEO for um, product creators online." people who have some kind of digital product, and obviously this is one of many examples and you focus on that audience or, or market vertical. What happens later is you start to gain insight into that market and come up with these cool new ways to help them. The fear that a lot of us feel is exactly what you're talking about, which is that sounds boring. I, I like learning new things all the time and it, you know, this is almost universally true, whether it's software developers or more creative agencies. We just thrive on. We have. We're curious people. We're creative people, and we just thrive on that sort of learning curve thrill. But I think you can make the argument that it's uh, it doesn't does not deliver great ROI to your clients to always be learning on their dime, and it's border. I won't say unethical, but it's borderline. Um, you're, you're making them share a lot of risk. If you sell somebody a $50,000 website and this is the first time you've set up WooCommerce ever, and that's part of the project. I, I just keep coming back to that's why I think people should narrow down and focus. The reality though of doing that is it's not any less interesting. I think of some of the Ted talks I've seen. Um, there was this mycologist, uh, Richard Stamler, I think is his name who his TED talk was 10 ways mushrooms are going to save the world, right? That's not the kind of talk that a biologist could have given. That had to be someone who went deep into that subject. And it's, it's paradoxical. I know that people may not believe it at first blush, but when you narrow down your focus into a narrow area, it's, life is still interesting. And even if it, well, and it is, and and you still get to do all the other things. You know, you still get to talk to crazy prospects who are a bad fit and then tell your buddy stories about that. <laughs> you still get to, um, you know, work with subcontractors or you still get to manage employees, which is its own world of uh, intrigue and, um, you know, hopefully healthy relationships, but sometimes not. So all that stuff doesn't go away. But what does happen is you stop spending so much effort trying to win work, which has, you know... It frees up time to do pro bono work or f- interesting side projects that maybe you spin out into products or just do for the fun of it. If Well, a few things. There's one, like,
0: you probably shouldn't specialize or align your positioning in something that you hate doing. But if, if it's something that you don't mind doing, you enjoy, as soon as you kind of dive deeper in it, you see how many more options are and you're still going to keep learning. But I think the bigger point is, like you said, it'll, it'll allow you to charge more money and find work easier. So it gives you the freedom to do those hobbies and in, inside projects as well.
1: It does. And if you're at all reliant on technology for what you do, uh, technology keeps on changing and that by its very nature means that you're having to invest time in sort of keeping up and mm-hmm. uh, staying current and so forth. And, and so that is also going on. So no, definitely. I think it's a bit of a false fear, but I totally understand it because no one wants to head back to the cubicle that they just escaped.
0: And I think that's what it goes back to is they, they see it as if I just do this one thing, I'm just going to be kind of like a, a drone. It's going to be like, uh, I'm
1: just back in a nine to five. Yeah. And I think the best thing you can do is, uh, and most people don't really know a lot of experts, you know, so. Mm-hmm. If you don't know a lot of experts, just look at what experts are doing. They're probably giving keynote presentations at conferences that you attend and doing stuff. And and you can just kind of ex- try to extrapolate that to your own life. And I think it paints a, a more accurate picture of what it's really like.
0: No, that's, that's good advice. And so let's kind of take a step back a little bit. And so say I am that Rails development agency. If I want to work with you, if I'm saying... If I need help filling my pipeline, how would you come in and help with that, with what you offer right now?
1: There, we would start by trying to understand your current position and, and whether that needs to change. It may, it may not. Um, changing it may be beneficial but optional. It really, it, it just, it depends on a lot of things. I am clearly, I'm an advocate for a narrow focus, but it's not for everybody. But that's the first thing we would want to talk about. What does a typical engagement co- look
0: like to you when someone comes to you? I'm sure, even within your your narrow focus, there's
1: a lot of variety. But what is the process like? So if it's not, it, it, you know, once we get past that that question of positioning, then it becomes a question of how, what kind of assets can we build to generate, uh, you know, leads without it being that famine scramble. Mm -hmm. For a lot of agencies, they do have some expertise that they've built up over time that we can translate into content marketing. So this is a whole nother subject. Content marketing for professional services is very different than content marketing for a SaaS company or a B2C company. They're using content marketing in a very different way than Someone at an agency or a solo freelancer should use. How, how should an agency be using content marketing? It has one goal, which is to build trust. It has one major problem, which is that nobody wants to do it. <laughs> so, uh, nobody wants to do it on an ongoing basis. Right. And so the solution that I advise is, uh, structure it as a, as a short-term project where you take all the expertise you have in some area that's highly relevant to your clients. And turn it into some content that goes onto your website, but is presented as a sort of resource center that your clients can use, or a—I uh, mean—ultimate guide is kind of overused, but just some, some kind of multi-part resource. It does not have to be written content; could be, you know, a series of audio uh, content pieces. It could be screencasts. It could be a number of things, but make it cohesive. Make it something that people opt in to get more of and then get out in the world in some way and teach people something and send them back to that resource to opt in so that they're on a list and then you can warm them up and nurture them over time. And you will find that a certain percentage, the, the, the minority for sure, but a certain percentage of those people within 30 days are, are giving you money for something and a certain percentage are a year later just coming out of nowhere and saying, Hey, can we talk about hiring you? Which is a wonderful feeling.
0: Yeah, I bet. No, and that's the thing is right. Cause it would content marketing, you'll, you'll have a few kind of that, that have the immediate need. But the beauty, especially of the, of the nurturing sequences of, of email marketing of things to keep the relationship going warm is that when people do have the need down the road, you're still fresh in their mind.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Here's the other thing that will happen. Certain people who are on that list will refer you to other people. Those other people will hire you. And so you got hired by someone who wasn't on your list but heard about you because of your email mm-hmm. list.
0: But so, all right, so if if you're working with me as an agency owner, we, we create a content plan, you're building out the, the different marketing assets what if I don't have much of an audience to begin with? I have client base,
1: but in uh, a website, but no one's really, no one's going there because there's not much on it. Well, yeah, again, no one's born. Uh, I was not born knowing <laughs> what I was going to do uh, 40 years later. No one's born with an audience. And so the easiest way I found to uh, build an audience is to, to borrow an existing audience. And this is not my invention, but you know, I've tried a number of things and, uh If I have something interesting to teach the the opportunities to present that to people they don't appear magically you you still have to make them happen, but those opportunities become a lot more available to you if you're you know a rail shop owner and you're trying to teach uh business owners about the value of developing some custom uh office automation software or workflow automation software you will find opportunities to uh, borrow an audience that wants to hear about that. And at that point, it's very easy to send them back to this content resource that you've created for them and get them on a list. So I I know I'm kind of glossing over some details about how that actually works, but that is just a fantastic way to do it. Anybody who has uh, built up an audience of their own, Has a new problem that they uh, are probably ill prepared to meet, which is feeding that audience content, relevant content, so that the audience continues to pay attention to them. And that's where you as the agency owner can come in and say, Hey, I've got to, you know, put together a 30 minute presentation on this thing. Can I share it with your, with your audience?
0: And so a lot of that would be through kind of. Podcasts, webinars, guest posting—the those types of opportunities.
1: Those are the things I like doing because I don't have to right. leave the house to do them. <laughs> but uh, like tomorrow, I'm uh, teaching a class on positioning at General Assembly, so there, you know, there's oh, like nice. IRL opportunities to do that. Right. And um, you know, so yeah, there's there's tons of audiences out there. You're not going to start giving the keynote at your favorite conference, but you can in a very meaningful way build up a list. I mean, I've put somewhere between 700 and 800 people on my own list just by appearing on podcasts.
0: The difference between, like, a in my mind, what I'm thinking is the difference between like, a SaaS company and an agency is SaaS companies, unless they're the higher-end B2B stuff, they're not charging much, and so you need a huge base of customers. But for an agency, especially if you're an expert and you're tightly positioned, you don't need this massive list and, and tons and tons of customers. A few customers, is that can be worth a ton of money.
1: You know, yeah, I could, uh, you know, on the consulting side of my business, tw- 20 clients could keep me busy for a year. And let's say that, you know, those clients see my services once every five years. So over the course of five years, uh, we're talking about a 100 clients. What market is so small that I could dominate that market by serving a hundred clients? I mean, it's, it's unimaginably tiny. So yeah, uh, it, the other thing about professional services is that the sale really is made based on trust. I mean, there's other factors, of course, like reputation and so forth, but what they're all doing is building up the client's trust to the point where they are willing to cut that check. And, and so a SaaS. How much trust does it take to give them a credit card and, you know, agree to a $19 charge to try it out for a month? Not nearly as much as it takes to sign off on fifty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 worth of development work. So, no, definitely. Yeah. So everything that, a, you know, uh, an agency needs to be doing to market themselves is all geared around how can we build trust. And if you're doing that before you have your first conversation with a prospect through, you know, online marketing, content marketing, then that first conversation goes real differently than if uh, if they've never heard of you and they just kind of saw you on a list and called you.
0: Yeah, and I think when you put it kind of in numbers like that, where you said 100 clients could sustain you for indefinitely almost, when you think about it that way, even if you have a large agency, even if you're supporting 10, 20 people or more, you still don't need to go after every WordPress site. When there are hundreds of millions of them, you you can be much, much, much more narrow. And then you have an easier way of kind of standing apart from the crowd.
1: That's that's the paradoxical part of it is, um you know, we all have this kind of part of our brain that's like, I don't want to say no to the uh, potential to feed myself. But when you start saying no, you become a lot more appealing to this narrow segment you've decided to go after. And I would recommend that anybody listening kind of do those numbers. Like in the worst-case scenario, let's say you only close 20% of the uh, leads that you talk to uh, or, I mean, just use whatever numbers seem realistic and really do the numbers about what kind of market size could you go after where you win, let's say, 30% of the work in that market. And I think that people will be surprised by how small that market turns out to be. Right. I mean, you're not Apple trying to, you know, dominate the smartphone market. It's a completely different game when it comes to the numbers.
0: Right. Or, or IBM trying to do kind of any large consulting project and they'll do anything and everything that you throw at them. Exactly. It's, you, you don't need that scale. You don't need that size. So, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. And so it seems like kind of over the past even just a couple of years for you, that you've, a ton has changed in, in your life and in, in your business. What have kind of been the big successes you've had recently what what has really kind of
1: moved the needle for you it's really it's two things it's it's clients kind of showing up out of my mailing list and the other thing has been being able to to replicate that success for my clients uh, for some of them it It takes time by the way, <laughs> so mm-hmm. even if you do yeah. everything right i I favor uh, online marketing approaches that they don't deliver overnight results, but once they're in place, they deliver results for years. So um, it's that time, you know, when the client Skypes me and shows me a screenshot of a lead they got and said, you know, this is exactly the kind of person I'm trying to attract. That really just feels amazing. And it, it makes me realize that the work that I'm doing is, uh, you know, is worthwhile so I mean without naming names that's one of my more memorable um successes is is seeing that screenshot in Skype.
0: Oh I can imagine yeah. And so what are you working on right now? Are there any new projects in the works?
1: I've just wrapped up a book that really is kind of in beta. Um it's it's my second book on positioning called uh The Positioning Strategy Guide. So I'm that's probably the main focus aside from client work is trying to get that out into the world. And then the other thing I'm that's a little bit more on the horizon is I keep telling all my prospects and clients, you should build an educational resource center. And I should do that myself too. (laughs) (laughs) I have some content marketing assets that, that I like, but I also am kind of fired up about this way of generating leads that, works for me and i think is repeatable for other people and so i want to put that together into uh sort of a content marketing resource center that i have on my own site and use to generate leads for my business
0: Oh i can't wait to check those out when what is the
1: sort of rough timeline for those two things the book is available now for purchase, and if I can get that more polished and finished by the end of the year and and sort of launched in a more effective way, I'll be happy with that. So 2015, if you're <laughs> listening to this way in the future, and then the the other thing is a is a like uh, early 2016 project, right? Yeah,
0: nice. And so I know you you've talked a lot about how kind of playing in your own strengths, and so and I know you don't. Have the goals of running a major agency. You don't want it to take over your life and have to manage a big team. And so what does
1: success look like for you in, in your business? You know, success, uh, for me looks like, uh, very specifically. So I, I mean, I've sort of hinted that I have some products, more product revenue so that to the point where that's like, that covers my monthly expenses. That would feel like a major accomplishment uh because mm-hmm. and, and, a year ago I had zero products. So in the course of, let's say over the next year, if I can get that product revenue to where it's it's covering the, the monthly minimum, that would be awesome. I, I intend to continue consulting uh indefinitely, but um that would be success number one. Success number two it would just would be that it just extending the kind of predictability of my pipeline and uh, knowing that that the work is there when I, when I need it. Um, and, you know, I'm part of the way there, but I have progress to make also. That's what occurs to me. Maybe that's kind of a selfish way of uh, looking at it, but, you know, this business is just me, so I'm the only person I really have to take care <laughs> of. No, and, and I think
0: it makes a lot of sense. And what a lot of, especially freelancers, the appealing part of having products is, it's just not passive by any means, but it's the semi-passive revenue that covers your expenses and lets you do the consulting that you enjoy. But you can be pickier about who you take on, the project you take on, when you know everything is covered from something
1: that is more passive than selling your time. And, you know, uh, there's another aspect to it that's actually uh, maybe even, I don't say more valuable, but super valuable, which is it provides options for your client so that you – the option is not hire me at this price point or get lost. There's a sort of a, a low to high price way of engaging. And so some people are going to engage at that low price uh, point and then come back later at a higher price point. And that's incredibly valuable for, uh, for de- developing your business and, um, and making it so that you're not just dependent on high dollar consulting.
0: No, that makes a good point. You, you appeal to, an entirely different kind of segment of the market with a lower price product. And that's all they'll be spending money w- on you with. But others, you're right, they may escalate and they might say, their needs might change. They might say, hey, Philip or whoever, can you help me? I need something more customized now.
1: Yeah, I think it really strengthens the business from not just from the perspective of an additional stream of revenue, but it just makes for a more robust uh, business from like a business development perspective. Definitely. And
0: so, Philip, to kind of wrap things up a little bit, if if people are interested in, in hearing more about positioning and hearing more about what you have to offer, where can they find out more about that?
1: I would urge people to go to a free email course that I've put together that walks them through the process of positioning their business. They can find that at positioningcrashcourse.com. That is just by far the best way to get started and then, you know, once you do that you'll have my email address you'll be able to reply to e- emails and get an answer from me pretty quickly and and that's just i think the most sensible starting point so positioningcrashcourse.com nice and I'll make sure I'll
0: make sure to link that up in the show notes and get your your twitter and everything else in there as well cool. um and so before we say goodbye could you just share kind of one parting piece of advice you'd give to the agency owner who hasn't really dabble too much in positioning, they're fairly generalists. What would you say to get them started on, uh, at least considering
1: tightening up their positioning? I would, uh, I mean, the one piece of parting advice is to um, just to consider focusing on a, on a particular audience or, or market vertical. Look around to see if other uh, agencies that you respect have done that. You'll find a mix. Some have, some haven't. And, you know, for those that have, maybe just reach out to that agency owner and ask them how it's going. You know, again, I acknowledge that there's other ways to do things and and those ways can work just fine. But maybe just have a conversation with someone who is has taken that step of narrowing their focus and get their take on it. Don't don't just believe me, (laughs) but, you know, do, (laughs) do your own research and your own due diligence. And I think that may open up some interesting possibilities for folks.
0: No, that's definitely great advice, especially combined with going through the positioning crash course. I'm sure that's a great way for everyone to kind of get their feet wet and see if it's something for them. And I think a lot of listeners will be surprised at kind of a lot of the, the benefits and come along with that and really dive into to narrowing down. Yep. So, Philip, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was my pleasure, Andy. Really great talking to you. And
1: this was a lot of fun.
0: I right, know I enjoyed it a lot. So thanks again. I think a lot of us can relate to Philip's story. Delivering our services to our clients is only a small piece of what running an agency entails, because first we actually have to find those clients, which is often easier said than done, especially when it seems like everybody else is offering the same services as you. By carefully positioning your agency to target a specific segment of the market, you're able to stand out from the commoditized crowd. Beyond that, by working on a specific problem for a specific type of client, you're able to quickly develop real expertise, which in turn lets you deliver better results to your clients and charge a premium rate. Don't get me wrong, though. There are plenty of agencies out there that have done very well as generalists, and if that's you, there is nothing wrong with that. But if you struggle to fill your pipeline or to command a high rate, then you should consider whether or not specializing is worth it for your agency. Remember, consulting is built on trust, and positioning is just one tool to help you build that trust with your clients. How do you build trust with your clients? I'd love it if you shared your best tip in the comments. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to iTunes and share what you got out of this episode in a review. We finally got the show listed there last week. And leaving a review, especially in the beginning, will really help us build an audience. So if you could spare a minute or two to do that, I would really appreciate it. That's all for this week. Tune in next week where I'll talk with an expert about the biggest mistakes agencies are making with a social media presence. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you then. See ya.